Welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where sometimes we discuss films so gross that we actually gag with disgust while recording. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome, and I am so sorry in advance. We're now fully in the wild, wild west of millennial horror. It's gross, it's up-close violence, it's a lot of casual misogyny, low-rise jeans, and tank tops. In a word, it's nasty. And the double bill in store for this episode is an epically nasty one. The oft-forgotten Grindhouse debut by Jonathan Levine, All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, and the feminine grotesquerie of The Loved Ones, directed by Sean Byrne, who'd go on to make the devil's candy. I'm joined in this episode by millennial horror scholar, writer, and podcaster Jordan Cruciola. And before we dive into our episode this week, a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Ghost UK. As usual, I'd deeply appreciate if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, especially after this episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And I hope this does not deter you from listening to future episodes of this podcast. Please note, as per usual, our discussions are all spoilerific. We talk about the plot twists of both these films pretty much from the start, so you have been warned. And with all of that said, please enjoy our take on All the Boys Love Mandy Lane and The Loved Ones. So, Jordan Cresciola, welcome back. So, you know there's no place I'd rather be, Anna. No place I'd rather be. This is this is the coolest spot on the internet. Our little Zoom. <laughs> it is! Two hours in, talking about everything. Yep. And now finally hitting the record button. <laughs> this is happening. I feel like I, I just want to say, because I'm having flashbacks to the very first time we recorded. Which, it, uh, one of my Jennifer's favorite body. memories of the pandemic. <laughs> Where I, because that episode will come out next week i'm gonna i'm gonna re- remaster it right right um i'm gonna give it a judge it up a little bit and repost it because this jennifer's body is absolutely essential to this teen horror season yes it is um but i remember being fucking terrified of you at now, that what recording was the terror i don't think i asked specifically <laughs> what the terror was in regards to because i love that it's because you're very smart and extremely enthusiastic oh okay got it got it okay <laughs> Was it like um? Was it in in a, in leading up to or as it was happening? You were like Jesus Christ. Both. Okay. I told you this. It was both. It's because I'd known your work, yeah, but I did not know the extent, the extent of your knowledge and passion. <laughs> well, so God, when it started and we started unfolding, with Jennifer's body. <laughs> Shit, that's no warm up right there. Like. That's just going straight to the Olympic 100 meters, like, boom. Well, quite. <laughs> well, quite. It was it was jumping into the deep end of the pool of teen horror. Yeah. And specifically the 
cruciola pool. Yeah. But it would oh not have it any other way. Couldn't be more of a cruciola pool than Jennifer's body and all cheerleaders die in the same conversation. The trifle, as you said. Oh my god. The genre trifle that is all cheerleaders die. But I feel like now, this is actually in this Teen Horror season, the first episode that's not the last four have been of movies that came out in the year 2000. Mm, okay. Um, plus uh, the Ninja Snap sequels, mm. which was last week. And now we're entering, I think, one of the most maligned eras for cinema and horror cinema in general. And, and my most my most specialized area. Which is a per like, Mitch that that Venn diagram most maligned Jordan's specialty is a <laughs> perfect circle. Well, it's it's kind of a, a triple Venn Venn diagram, isn't it? Because it's maligned horror cinema of the noughties. Yes, it's it's also teen girl horror cinema yep. of the noughties. This is this is a beautiful coalescence of things i'm excited (laughs) for what's going to come out of this conversation i will say i feel like it's relevant just in the in the conversation of maligned things uh the writer phil iscove who uh the creator of the sleepy hollow show and he does the podcast like it's 1999 show with kenny nybart and uh he he's a discerning man and i think he is like irritatedly charmed by my lack of discernment in certain in the way that he is and kind of just like like I was in a Twitter exchange with him recently where he was I don't remember what I was like getting behind a fucking escape from LA something and he was like great no movies are bad what a time to be alive and he was just like I could see him just like throwing his hands up in exasperation and I responded to him I was like Phil that's not true Atonement is a bad movie and he responded <gasps> he was like that's the movie you pick I was like yeah what can't stand it can't stand oh let's not go there let's not go there i don't want to find the the 2006 movie that we're going to disagree on in this conversation (laughs) ots movie i will go to bat for all the boys love mandy lane ots movie i won't atonement i did not expect this and yet here we are yeah neither did phil neither did phil i also i also did not expect you took on back to me when picking films from the season with all caps i fucking love all the boys love mandy lane twist (laughs) <laughs> there will be twists what is that? so before i ask you why uh-huh. and how much you love this movie mm-hmm. can you just refresh uh, our memories a little bit and kind of what is this what is this film about yeah all the boys love mandy lane it's a it's a slasher it is um amber heard plays the titular mandy lane and indeed all the boys do love mandy lane at this i would i think it's a like texas high school like kind of shit kicker texas high school and i think we enter um on mandy's junior year and the first thing we see of mandy is in order boobs face ass as she is walking down a high school hallway in slow motion with every single boys and girls alike every single head turning to watch her walk through the hallways and as a character points out um wow, like, somebody came into junior year, like, looking super fucking hot, Mandy. And Mandy has apparently, uh, something tells me she was always pretty, but Mandy has apparently blossomed, perhaps over the summer, come back to school her junior year. The entire school is sort of entranced by her. We, sort of the first thing we see is a high school party that goes awry. 
uh, leading to the death of one boy and an unclosable rift between her and her best friend. And then we cut to nine months later in the school year where Mandy has aligned herself with the more popular clique in school, has left her uh, weird incel former best friend boy behind. And we follow these teens on a trip to one of their, uh, on a like a ranch house getaway weekend where there will be drinking and drugs and almost everybody on premises trying to fuck Mandy Lane. And then people start dying. Great premise. Yes. So my question yes. is, why do all the boys love Mandy Lane? And this is why I love this movie. All the boys love Mandy, which first of all, what a great title. What a great. Oh, it's fantastic. What a great vintage horror movie title. And this movie, this movie feels like a first movie. This movie has student film dripping off of it. And there's something to me, like, so charmingly try hard about its, like, lens flare decisions, like, stylistic choices. But I feel like there is a rawness to the production of this movie that isn't artful. It looks it looks cheap. Like, I'm not, this isn't like, ooh, this auteur for a director that would go on to make many well-reviewed and successful movies. I think there is a rawness and a youngness to the filmmaking of this movie that matches actually to me that kind of teen horny desperation that is coursing through sort of everyone around Mandy. There is a there's a sort of unpolishedness that I actually feel like complements mm. the story and the material. And you have a very young Amber Heard. This was one of her first movies, and I would imagine her, I could have to assume her biggest film role to date at the time. Mm-hmm. And she plays this unknowable, sort of unplaceable hot girl. She's dream girl. And I think in the way that other movies could do dream girl this vaguely drawn and have it be like, you just wanted a static stock hot girl character and you just didn't put any thought into it. I think there is an aloofness about Mandy that actually feels narratively very appropriate to the purpose that she serves in this movie, which is that each of the boys, who is quite different in their disposition, each of the three main boys that she goes to to this ranch getaway weekend with, each of them is quite different. Each of them has said, like, out loud, like, first dibs on Mandy. Like, they're all going there to try and fuck Mandy Lane. But she's, and as one of them read, narrates to us from bleachers as she's running around the track during, like, a football practice. Like, there she is, boys. Like, pure, pristine, untouched. And, like, she's coming to my house for the weekend. And I think this, like, very young sort of, I would imagine, acting on sort of pure instinct, Amber Heard, does a very good job sort of being that reflecting pool for whatever Mm. a boy who wants her sees when he looks into it. And it doesn't actually fucking matter at all what Mandy Lane is. Because all that matters is what each boy wants Mandy Lane to be and what each boy wants Mandy Lane to be to him. And I think there feels like the way she plays it sort of so, I I guess Amber Heard um, had said, this is Wikipedia, I did not follow through the link to the citation, so I'm always hesitant to quote like a thing on Wikipedia, but my eyes just scanned past it. <clears throat> and and I, I guess Amber Heard had mentioned, I would assume in an interview uh, around when this came out or when it was being made, 
that she purposefully didn't spend time with the other cast on the shoot. Like she didn't mix it up and pal around, I think, with the other cast members as much as they did with each other because she felt like it was important to keep that distance between her and the others for the sake of her character. And I think that is exactly Mm. right because while Mandy is sort of of everyone because everyone desires Mandy and like the girls are very, in a specially 2000s way, very like competitive with and cruel about other girls and clearly clearly jealous of mandy and one of them at a like a vulnerable very wasted moment like into mandy um she isn't she doesn't belong to any of these people nobody really knows her and nobody's asking any fucking questions (laughs) nobody's trying to understand more about mandy lane and she's not in any she doesn't seem to have any desire to want to give over any more information either so i think another thing that makes her especially compelling is that There's like a category of character that's like, I don't want you to know me. That's just like begging to be known. And like the point of the movie Mm -hmm. is them opening up to one special select person who's the chosen one. But Mandy sincerely doesn't want you to know a fucking thing about her. Like she doesn't give a shit about you or whatever your needs are. She just kind of wants to be left alone, but understands she's in this position of pretty privilege. And like it's going to kind of take advantage of it. But in this low key way where there's always going to be a boundary between her and others around her. And to me, it was a very, very accurate rendering of a specific and extremely effective kind of sort of mythic hot girl that is very popular in sort of like the teen consciousness and landscape and I think this mm-hmm. movie I, I like it so much because I think it harnesses that so well in a way that like really doesn't get a lot of credit for especially in an era when it's it's boobs out boot cuts spray tans Like, this is made in 2006. We are in the throes of the 2000s. And there's no, like, sheen or polish or celebutant feel about this. It does just feel very bootstrapped. But manages to, I think, create a vibe that is a lot more kind of authentic feeling. As opposed to, like, the synthetic candy that I enjoy so much from that era. That I think this movie manages to get more sort of under the skin of something. That I think is very common in the popular imagination about, like, the teen experience. There is something that there's a couple of things that you mentioned that I want to pick up on that I think are absolutely spot on. And is that that it feels very, very much like a first feature, but yeah. specifically it feels like the feature that someone makes almost as a way of getting out of their system the one hot girl that they were obsessed with in high school. That make that that feels so real. That feels so it's, real. It's, it's because of this, like, the yeah. way that A, Mandy is filmed, mm-hmm. the way that her character twists around. And, yeah. you know, this is obviously spoiler, spoilerific territory. The way that Mandy is essentially the killer yeah. and, and the victim of her own movie is the fact that nobody knows her, but everybody projects whatever mm-hmm. it, whatever it is that they want Mandy to be onto her. But also the way that she's filmed for the majority of the movie mm-hmm. as someone who is consistently even being told that she doesn't know how hot she is, yeah. is an absolute fucking lie. And there is yep. this like nugget of almost in Sally like resentment yes. towards Mandy it's like I be, which is what makes me think it's like oh you're thinking of someone specific mm-hmm. maybe even a couple of girls you're thinking of specific girls that you yeah. wanted that you could not get that she you is a knew you could never get people you have a chip on your shoulder about <laughs> Exactly. And it's a thing of, you know, a lot of guys will say it's like, oh, you know, it, the the most wonderful thing is like when a girl is super, super model hot, but yeah. doesn't know how hot she is. It's like, it is impossible for Amber Heard, for Mandy Lane, for any hot girl to not know how hot she is mm-hmm, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. that realm, in this universe. Mm-hmm. But she performs everything from the flip of her hair to the way that she dresses, to the way that she looks at things, to the mm-hmm. way that she says no, to the way that she rejects their affections, mm-hmm. but invites it just enough 
And the fact that twist is what validates this movie for me, because the first time you watch it, you're like, you're almost on their side. It's like Mandy Lane is a fucking tease. Mandy <laughs> oh, no, Lane I'm, just I'm, lets them you know in me. I'm enough. team Mandy day one. I'm team Mandy day one. <laughs> Castrate them all. I'm with Mandy. Mandy, do you need a ride home? I'll take you. But it's like, but it does that. There's the savagery in the way that she's filmed where I'm like, oh, it's coming from a place of like vicious resentment towards Mm -hmm. all the Mandy Lanes. Mm -hmm. But the fact that this movie gives her teeth Mm -hmm. at the end of it, really, that's the only adult bit for me. It's like, you remember what it feels like and you remember the chip on your shoulder and you remember the bitterness of it, but you've moved on. Mm -hmm. And you've given, you. nobody will know Mandy. Uh Uh-huh. But she still gets away and she still gets her own. And it's actually better that she uses all the tools in her pretty book toolbox of pretty Mm -hmm. in order to get whatever the fuck it is that she wants. And Mm -hmm. we never know what it is that she wants. No, no, we really don't. And I I think that there's such an interesting delineation between like, honestly, my favorite One Direction song, Terrible Message, Uh, You Don't Know You're Beautiful, What a Bop. But it's also an anthem about like I like girls who aren't securing themselves, and because like I've I, never heard. I'm sorry, I've never heard a single One Direction song. I am a Harry Styles stan. I love his solo work, but I've yeah. never heard a One D song. Uh, and that's a that's it's not like it's not like first run One Direction, but it's like they it's it's early in their they are a bona fide global sensation era. So this is still okay. like young One D. And the chorus is like, oh, it's just like pulsing, whipping bass and like, oh, uh, oh, you know, you don't know you're beautiful. Like, okay, thanks One Direction. We understand you want a vulnerable girl. But there is a difference between hot girls can be insecure. Hot girls can doubt their looks. But as a veteran best friend of hot girls, this is my area of expertise. As a veteran best friend of hot girls, a role I love, to a one all of those girls know what the world thinks of them. Even if they don't necessarily feel it and, and and aren't able to embody it in a confident way and walk around with the like, you know, DNA test results are in, I'm a 100% that bitch. Like even if they mm-hmm. can't sort of glide around with that swagger, there is an ability there is a pattern recognition, there is an ability to memorize that they are wanted for this kind of cultural currency that they have. And whether or not they have a healthy relationship with that depends on the person. A million different answers. But all of those hot girls have known, whether in a healthy or unhealthy way, that the thing that opens doors for them first is what they look like. And Mm -hmm. so, no. Mandy knows. Mandy knows. knows. Because Mandy, Mandy knows, girls know, how the how the air flexes when they walk into a room. They know that when they walk past adult men as children, adult men ogle them in a way that almost seems it is within their control, but a way that they almost like perform as beyond mm-hmm. their control. They know that they get asked out a lot. They know that boys pay them a lot of attention. Like, in in Mandy's existence, in just the few days that we know this character, we see so many encounters. One boy thinks he's going to, like, play the nice guy card. And, like, he's walking up to the house with Mandy when they first get to the ranch. And he says to her, you know we're all trying to get you, right? And Mandy, being perfectly Mandy Lane, 
Amber Heard just, you know, I think playing this kind of perfectly, just goes like, get me? Mandy, Man, Mandy's maybe never fucked anybody, but Mandy knows what they mean. Mandy knows exactly what the intentions of the tongue-wagging boys are all around her. Because when you grow up hot, <laughs> when when you are a teen girl, you developed early, maybe you're like the, the, the biggest babe in your class, your life is defined by that kind of attention. Your your life is shaped. It is it things are you are granted permissions and you and boundaries are set for you based on how people immediately make your hotness their issue. So there's no way Mandy Lane doesn't know because this idea that girls don't understand their power, how powerful they are is just men abdicating their responsibility to be respectful, non-predatory people around hot girls and saying, well, she doesn't know what she does to me. She she couldn't possibly be aware. It's like, really? Because you make it her business constantly to have to field and manage how incredibly obsessed you are with how hot she is all of the time. And I think there's this like kind of soft naivete to the way Amber Heard plays the role that I think lends so perfectly to its resolution at the end that like we get a little bit of like a sort of maniacal eyed bitch at the very close but for the most part Mandy just feel Mandy's seat to me at the very end seems relieved that she at least got these fucking pieces off the board that she doesn't have to worry about anymore for like a minute she just is on her own. And when the guy, when that boy, I mean, also having the incel former best friend screaming die with me is so incredibly, perfectly, dramatically, nightmarishly psychotic. Oh, 100%. Like, incre- incredible. In a, in a, in a pit of dead cat rotting cow bodies screaming die with me. And she fucking destroys him. And then she's like, I'd rather finish high school first and walks off. You're like, oh my God. Yeah, Mandy. <laughs> Good good for her there's there's something there is something about her that actually makes the the twist worthwhile for me is the fact that re-watching it and in hindsight and when you think about it kind of after the 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 aftershock of the twist comes mm-hmm. is that she's given every single character the version of herself yeah. that they want to see yeah. and she gives them only so much mm-hmm. to continue nurturing their obsession mm-hmm. so i think that's what makes her a fun fucking character mm-hmm. is the fact that she does nurture their obsession i don't actually think that she's relieved i think she's excited to move on oh, to I the next ones yeah i go with because that. because they became boring because <laughs> Mandy her would get friend... so bored with that. Mandy is oh bored God, yes. every day of her life. Yeah. And you know who's interesting to her now? Ansel Mount. <laughs> yeah, the older that man. That cowboy. Yeah. She's <laughs> like, oh, this is this is a new flavor that I haven't I haven't played with yet. Yeah. That is her entire you can you can see it. And the way that she doesn't fucking care about him saving him or whatever, but like she's presenting a completely different version of Mandy to him Mm -hmm. because he only knows her as an individual and not within the high school society. Mm -hmm. And the power dynamic is completely different because obviously he's an adult, she's a teenage girl, but she's, you know, what, a junior? Yeah. So it's like one more more year of being a, a high school student. Yeah. Which whole nother level of problematic <laughs> but also that's another another playing around with what she knows is appealing to grown-ass men mm-hmm. it's like you're so mature for your age mm-hmm. you're so different from the other girls yeah and I, in that I scenario love, i love that you don't like 
you don't seem like the others. You you seem different. And her answer. That's because I am. It's because I am. <laughs> I fucking lived. Like that is such a like, that is such a twee moment of like girl bashfully puts her head down and like tucks her hair behind her ears moment. And Mandy just looks at him. That's because I am. It's like, and you, what you don't know yet if you haven't watched this movie, is that she has orchestrated the murders of everyone around her. So it's like, yeah, you really are cut from a different cloth, aren't you, Mandy? But, like, in that moment, it just kind of feels like this... God, it's like, such a fa- flex. Like, it's a flex of fake vulnerability. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to weaponize you feeling more powerful than me mm-hmm. in order to put to turn you into jelly into the palm of my hand. And that and her, she's got great hair in this oh, movie. This Amber is peak Heard's Amber Heard hair. hair. It's at it, like, it's great Gorgeous. hair. And it's really like, it's at its peak form in this movie. It's at its peak. And it's weaponized from the very first moment Ooh, we see her because she is, she is the master of letting the hair fall just right to cover half of her she face. She gets that amazing swoop, like product in Amber Heard's yeah. hair. She gets that amazing swoop that's almost like 80s in its like wave that it produces like above her mm-hmm. head and the way it like falls down covering just like one eye. Not all hair can do that, even with the right product no. in it. But like Alicia Silverstone, Amber Heard, they've got it like that. It is both a throwback to 90s uh, like murderous Lolita type erotic thrillers and at the same time a precursor to Instagram hair like that (laughs) wavy natural approach because and this 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 is like a this is a way to lead into my next question which you've you've alluded to before it's like how does Mandy fit in with the other girls and the dynamic between the teen girls like how does it so kind of eerily reflect millennial teen girl culture <laughs> it, uh, which was gross and misogynistic incredible like this is this is i love when you watch a horror movie that's like you that quote recently that i think was from chuck klosterman um talking i think he was talking with vulture maybe um i forget mm-hmm. where the interview was uh where he was talking oh about it's the, because he's got a new book called the 90s yeah and he was talking about like the 90s were the last like decade with a cohesive culture and then he was saying that like everything since everything looks the same now he's like you'd be hard pressed to tell the difference between like a movie from the 2000s and now and it's like chuck just tell us you haven't watched a movie since 1999 like are you are you fucking kidding me like and ezra klein the journalist retweeted that and he was like this feels Mm -hmm. really true to me like you know is this just because i grew up in like the 90s or is this true also for for people now like posing it as a question but being like yeah i think chuck's right and i was horrified like the 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 identity aesthetically verbally thematically of movies in the 2000s is so bless it so not now (laughs) like if you if you watch you watch this movie now and you're like jesus christ like (laughs) this the casual cruelty run amok like the blonde girl cannot stop calling the brunette girl fat this girl we're talking a size we're talking a size zero and a size double zero parading around this screen and she's like listen chubs and it's like, we see them in their underwear. We see the math of it. And like, this girl, she's a fat girl. Group of friends that hate each other, check. Like, belly ring, 
check. Like 2000s, <laughs> 2000s. Like saying like casual homophobia being bandied about, check. Like the ironed just... out long hair, which once again makes Mandy stand out because she's the only one with natural hair. Everyone else, like all the other girls have got like those long Board ironed straight. out extensions. Yeah. Bored straight hair. And it's just like, like, let's throw, let's throw like the R word in there casually. Like, no, this movie bleeds 2000s off the screen. And Mandy, Mandy is like nice enough to everyone to ever including especially the girls without forming a specific bond with any of them like she mostly like plays the boys aloof like they get close to try and kiss her and she like okay like that's that's enough of that the girls she offers kindness to like when when the quote-unquote chubby friend uh, I think Marlon is her name she's showing off her new belly button ring and the blonde is like wow uh, that's going to get lost in your folds because you're too oh, fat Jesus. to have a belly button ring. And I swear Had to God, a flashback, I, Jordan. I couldn't pinch an inch off either of these girls. And Amber heard like, you know, the girls clearly like fucking traumatized by her probably quote unquote best friend, you know, insulting her horribly in the locker room. And Mandy looks at her and just offers her like a sweet, like, I think it looks really nice. And then when blonde girl who's like, if not over the tipping point of having a drug problem, is really teetering on the knife's edge of it. Just kind of like doing lines of crushed up Adderall all, you know, throughout the movie. She's drinking a ton. She's by far like the most sauced of anybody in the group. And when she's incapacitated, um, Mandy takes her up to the bathroom to just like, you know, dab her with a cool towel and like continually strokes her hair and holds her face and is touching her skin. And you get that in, in queer baiting, check. And like queer baiting in a way that I can appreciate. Okay, 2000s, give me that. Like that felt like you have Mandy, you have Mandy and the blonde in the bathroom and they get like not ever so close to kissing, but they're definitely in the place where the energy is firing to where, like, they are on a crash course toward kissing each other. But then, like, the boys come to the door and they break up the moment. But, like, she knows the the sort of love languages of each of these girls. And, like, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, like, support and a compliment to Marlin because she's insecure and her best friend terrorizes her about being fat. And then clearly the blonde is, like, desperately insecure and needs, like, intimate physical touch validation because she's lusting after one of the boys in the group so that's what she's gonna give her in that moment in the bathroom and make her feel seen and cared for and then she gives red red actually i'm gonna say is a decent young boy red's an idiot but red isn't trying to coerce mandy throughout this movie and also he has that really cute moment where like blonde girl is asleep on him and it's everything Mm -hmm. he can do to just like kind of graze the back of her hand with his he's like so nervously like what if i touch your hand what if i touch your hand and it's like okay that's cute like that's that's sweet she's asleep on you and you're like what if i touch the back of her hand with the back of my fingers and it's like okay that's adorable i actually like you red but like she is very and she and clearly with with uh ex in ex best friend incel boy who she has sent on a murder mission to dispatch with all these people and who she has promised this is a murder suicide you're going to kill all these mm-hmm. people, then me and you are going to die together and we're going to live in oblivion forever. Me and you. It's just me and you. She really subtly 
gives each person, like you were saying, exactly what they need to feel further roped in by her. And it's done in such an unshowy way, which is so anathema to the entire attitude of 2000s horror. That when I watch this, like, it's really, to me, it's really punching above its weight with the way that it writes Mandy and the arc that it gives her and the way that it films her. Because we get a sense of Mandy's Mm. body. And I like the choice, actually, to do, like, boobs, face, butt when we see Amber walking down the hall to high school. Because it's conveying how the world perceives Mandy like we are seeing Mandy in that moment as how the students are processing her as she walks down that hallway but it doesn't linger on her like in the one moment she takes off her clothes to go swimming and she's in like her underwear we get some boobs at some point it's a horror movie I'm fine with it like I think it does a pretty good job of doing this teen slasher thing and giving you some of the red meat without actually being pervy and I think it it has a shocking understanding to me of of Mandy it has a shocking empathy to me of empathy for Mandy in how it lets her story resolve because it does feel like the movie about the ex but in the end it's like Mm -hmm. you know what Mandy had to take her shit back somehow like Mandy has to Mandy has to have the power in this world somehow that people keep telling her she has but that she's ultimately just like in a constant state of pursuit in a constant state of being pursued by people, which is like, you know what? Fuck it. It really lets, it really puts the story in Mandy's hands at the end. And maybe it hates her mm. for it, but I don't feel like it reads that way. And I, I don't think it's feel really like smart. this movie hates her. I don't I think don't, so. I, I don't feel like the movie hates her. And I think uh, there, there's two things that I, that I want to talk about. Uh, but before I do that, I think one of the very kind of smart choices about especially Mandy's physicality, mm-hmm. it's like, yes. Boobs, face, ass. Mm -hmm. She's hot girl above everything else for the majority of the movie. But the one thing that they get her to do, she's always doing this in the background and it makes sense for her character and it makes sense for the ending as well. She's always running. Yeah. She is not a weak hot girl. No. She's a hot girl who's running track. Yeah. That shit is effort. And leaving behind the pack by 100 meters when when she's out doing her sprints. And yeah, people are looking at her and like, I think superficially you can look at this movie and be like, oh yeah, it's because, you know, jiggly boobs and we want to see the hot girl running around and stuff like that. It's like, no, Mandy's fucking training. Mandy's fucking training. Mandy's training because she knows she's going to have to outrun all these motherfuckers when she kills them all. (laughs) (laughs) And this, this might be the first cabin weekend. It's not the last in Mandy's life. Maybe it's not senior year, but college? Mandy's might clean house again. And that's it. And, it, and even it, and even like going back to this very first scene, which after you finish a movie, you think about that very first scene. Because yeah. like her whole friendship with Emmett, the incel boy who's like desperately in love with her. It's like you picked someone to long term push them to the point <laughs> where they're ready to commit murder and suicide <laughs> for you. Yeah. And also, even the very small choice of taking him to that pool bo- to that poolside party full mm-hmm. of people who hate him mm-hmm. is so deliberate. It's like, oh, you you're activating him. He's <laughs> yeah. your Manchurian candidate. You're putting him in a position where, and you have said yeah. it is time to be called to action. You know that it's gonna fucking trigger him to see you being pawed by 
all the jocks who will also beat him up if he says anything. Yeah. And at the same time, you know that he will say something because he feels like he's the only one who gets you, Mandy. Yeah. He feels like he's the only one who knows you, who truly cares for you. He's putting his time uh-huh. to call dibs on Mandy. Yeah. And she, it's like she fucking loves the chaos. Mandy is a little chaos demon who <laughs> yeah. loves to shed shit on fire. And you know what? That's what I like about her. That's what I love about I her. <laughs> and I... It, I I will I will go to I will stand up for any movie that recognizes the shitty toxicity of that exact boy character friend like that weighted out wear her down entitled you don't know her like I do where it's like are you friends or are you just long scheming to fuck her when she's passed out one night like what's really like the Xander Harris like and the Mm -hmm. fact that this movie makes him I mean he's awful like he is yeah that that character is so fucking scary he's so like he he has the exact look like they styled him perfectly and he's so just like so many guys you knew that like kind of shaggy outcast and just like the resentment and the glee at the resentment and the possessiveness of her and that like that that romantic fantasy of of death with mandy and possessing her forever Mm -hmm. like it was a really spot on way to play him throughout the entire thing and end him again screaming like die with me die with me it like I would rather you die than be possessed by anyone but me and like my life is nothing and useless so let's be you know let's go into the void together that was really well done and this movie like it feels like with a fresh cone of paint this movie actually stands very stands up very well at this current moment like it kind of fits into the new class of good for her kind of like vengeance subversion movies promising young woman tragedy girls like revenge what i find kind of what i find kind of refreshing and perhaps this is why you know this movie is not clicking in the same way because Mm -hmm. it's not as well known as as the good for her cinematic universe as that magnificent tweet just said (laughs) is that mandy's not mandy's not avenging anything no like a chaos chaos goblin does not avenge anything a chaos goblin creates chaos and enjoys the chaos and then moves on to create more chaos Mm -hmm. which is fun and hot mean girls are not allowed to have fun yeah i want to hear from you about hot mean girls what do you tell me about hot teen mean girls anna well uh (laughs) i i think because i grew up in this millennial horrific era hot mean girls are the girls that you're supposed to hate you're not you're both you're both supposed to want to be the hot mean girl but Mm -hmm. if you're not specifically hot in that very specific naughty way very specific it's it's such a specific way yeah it's like it's got nothing to do with your personality or who you are nope it's like it's a very very tiny kind of paradigm of hotness and if you don't fit that then you're not hot, mm-hmm. which means that you're kind of free, but also you're a target because the hot mean girls are trapped by their hotness uh-huh. and they need to they lash out. So hot mean girls are fucking bullies in my experience. Yeah, yeah prolifically, yes. Yeah, but also now in hindsight, I'm like, wow, I, I hated hot mean girls because A, I wanted to be that hot, but B... I also wanted to be allowed to be that mean. Yeah. But actually, that's a trap. 
I, what, what do you need a trap? What do you need a trap? Because that meanness is so uh, self-destructive. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because like even even the hot mean girls in this movie, which are so, uh, you know, like caricatures of the hot mean girl of the 2000s. Yeah. They hate themselves so much. So much. And they get they Marlin get mistreated by everyone. Marlin is just tossing out sexual favors without any guarantee of reciprocity. Oh my God. Girl, but also, give blowjobs, the- but make him go first. The desperation in that scene, which also I I fucking love that scene. That scene also encapsulates the sex negativity of the two thousands, oh, which yeah. I like made me shudder. Uh-huh. And when she goes down on this guy, Luke Grimes, by the way, True Blood season five. Hello. How you I, doing, pal? I uh, <laughs> I spent Anna this whole movie thinking he was Shiloh Fernandez. Whole movie. <laughs> it ended and I was like, This is not the first time, Luke Grimes, that you've deceived me. I was watching Yellowstone with my family at home over Christmas and I was like, Shiloh Fernandez is in the show. My sister's like, That's Luke Grimes. And I was like, Oh my god, they look exactly alike. And she was like, oh, Okay, whatever. And I was like, No, I'm not kidding. And I like pulled up photos next to each other. She was like, Oh wow. I'm like, I'm saying this this is a tether. <laughs> this is a tether for Luke Grimes. But the point being that, like, that scene where she goes down on him, like, goes on for, like, three minutes. I'm like, well, why don't we? Okay, fine. Yeah. The desperation and the clinginess in her voice where she's like, mm. it's it's my turn now. And he's like, no, <laughs> no explanation. Pat on the back. I'm going to go. I'm going to go play video games, watch the game or whatever. I'm going like, to take the light with this. me. I'm going to take the light with me and leave you in the total darkness. Like, if I if I ever, like. If, like, if you ask me to do, like, a lecture on millennial misogyny in millennial cinema, I'm like, that scene comes first. Like, let me show you how easy it is to condense what it was like and how ubiquitous and normalized and just normal. Like, this is normal. normal. This is not even, you know, quote unquote toxic behavior or anything no. like that. Like, no, this is a standard. 100%. This is a standard and you have to get used to it. And uh, Hot Mean Girls... In the 2000s and in this movie, they just have to get used to it. And Mandy plays the game because she doesn't want to get used to it. Because she's a chaos goblin. She just wants to set some shit on fire and then move on. And then move on. I This movie was directed by Jonathan Levine, who would go Mm -hmm. on to make 50-50, the uh, well-reviewed comedy, uh, cancer comedy, cancer friendship comedy, Longshot. Recently, starring uh, which is famously, a great romantic comedy. Yeah, and he's famously friends with Seth Rogen, and he like he made the Wackness also. Like he's had a really <laughs> solid career of features, and this feels like a, a kind of director for hire job where it's like I need to get that first feature under my belt. But it to me, it's a but very, it isn't. What now? But it isn't. Oh, okay. It's okay. like an evolution. It's an evolution of his um, AFI thesis film. Oh, is it? Like, it's okay, not- I didn't know that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he didn't write the script, but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not like a a director for hire situation. Oh, because it's just it's so it's so different from everything else that would come after it. That's fascinating. That that was like that was. Like the first project, like this is like I this is my thesis project. I've spent a lot of time with this. I'm gonna make it my first feature, and then I'm gonna go on to this like career of like romantic anxiety movies um, for a long time in my life. Okay, I love that detail, and it's also important. I to mean, know, I, I'm. It's also I'm gonna double to check this. Mandy Lane was filmed in 2006, I think, and played festivals around like after it was completion. After its completion, then. 
the I think it was like the studio that, that was going to distribute it or something. It went bankrupt. And so it ended up in turnaround hell for seven years. Seven years. This movie did not come out until 2013. And then I remember like I remember hearing about it. I remember being excited by the poster for it. And then when it finally came out, something that gets stuck that long, you expect that oh, this is going to be like probably some total fucking mess of a catastrophe. Like there has to be a reason it was on the shelf for this long. And I remember watching it. And I think part of the reason I like it so much is it's very dear to me for like when I saw it, I was like, guys, this is pretty good. Like if this had just, if this had come out in 2006 and just been this, because this came out, this came out, I think in the same year as Jonathan Levine's movie, Warm Bodies, which is a totally underrated and very good romantic comedy with Nicholas Holt playing a zombie in love with Teresa Palmer, Mm -hmm. I think. And really well done and kooky and funny and gross with the zombie stuff. And then it comes out and it's like, it feels, it made it feel like this like dirty secret of a movie when it was like, Oh, it's actually pretty solid, and there's a lot to work with here. And this is a great. But there's like, this would have been a really standout indie entry into the two thousand proper two thousands horror landscape. But instead, it got put on a shelf for seven fucking years. But this is this is very important in horror in horror history as well. Those seven years changed Everything. the landscape of horror massively. Everything. So two thousand and six. Also, I think it's important to know that like for a very brief for a few, maybe a year. There was a glimmer of Grindhouse aesthetic mm-hmm. coming back because yeah. of Death Proof and yeah. Planet Terror with Tarantino Rodriguez. And also torture porn was the new big thing that everybody yeah. was loving. Everything was like this. Everything looked gross and yellow yeah. and green. <laughs> Everything and was sickly. chartreuse. Everything was nauseous. And yeah. this movie has that <laughs> sort of like law nauseous. budget nauseous tint to it. Totally. Right? It's like this this film is shot like someone has a hangover. So they color graded it like to match the color of someone's skin when they're hungover. Yeah, it is jaundice. And it's like And in 2013, like I'm sorry, the the renaissance of yeah. horror is becoming like an an art. And, and what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the moment of horror becoming respectable yeah, and becoming quote unquote feminist. You have you have James Wan adding this really artful, fine aesthetic to like essentially like a a very well done, but like a meat and potatoes mm-hmm. haunted house ghost story movie. And you and have- in two and in 2014, you're gonna have honeymoon Lee Janiak's debut. You're gonna have mm-hmm. uh the Babadook. You're gonna have a girl walks home alone at night. All of yeah. a sudden, everybody's like, "Huh, horror! It is good." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wouldn't you know? No, you're. Ex- it just <laughs> it it's like it needed to be saved almost for ten full years. Like it mm. if, if this had been on the shelf until like. 2016 or 17 I feel like it would have been like Shudder gets the exclusive rights to debut the long lost all the boys love Mandy Lane from Jonathan Levine and it would have been like a let's watch party let's tweet about it Amber Heard she was so young is that Luke Grimes I love Yellowstone like all kinds (laughs) of stuff like that but instead it just like kind of dropped like, it just kind of, like, it fell out of the world. It was like, oh, well, I guess we should put this out now because Amber Heard's, like, a little more famous and maybe we can market it on her from when she was 20 years old and now she's almost 30. But it, like, it feels so much more of now. And yet, mm. if it had come out when it was supposed to, it feels like it would have been a sort of, like, 
a nice little sort of shot of lo-fi sort of counter-programming to what was happening around it in the era that it was actually made. It feels out of time because of its production and distribution history. And it also feels at a time even when it's made. Because, I I mean, obviously, it wants to be Mm -hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It wants to be that, like, 70s, gritty, dirty, early slasher vibe. Or it it might want to be... It might want to be, and yet, like, it lacks the polish to match what was happening in the early 10s with, like, David Bruckner and Ty West and Mm -hmm. Adam Wingard and movies like You're Next, which, like, this kind of fits in the conversation with, but kind of is a little too film school to rise up to the level of comparable to really, like, well done, like, um, indie darling casts like what was coming out at that time this movie came too early to the horror party yes yes and then it left before the party really started kicking off <laughs> oh no worst party attendance they got there they they were one of the first few people there and they were bored before all the cool people showed up and the music you know, got good you know how in inside Llewellyn Davis mm-hmm Wait for it. You know how inside Lewin Davis, he just keeps missing opportunities by yeah. like a hair? <laughs> yeah. That's this movie. And it, it just kept missing its moment. And it really like, even watching it last night, it kind of, it surprised me again. Especially with like two dudes at the helm. Where mm-hmm. it would, it, it's, this movie seems like it. when you walk into it, you should be very suspicious. Especially with how Amber Heard as a screen presence, has been so fucking mishandled over the course of so much of her career. Like, there's there's a Haley Steinfeld and Kevin Costner movie called Three Days to Kill. And he plays a dying assassin and estranged father. He's trying to both connect with his daughter before he's dead and also try and last minute get a miracle, like, treatment for his disease. Uh, so it's it's a lot going on but like it's like earnest father daughter stuff but also he's an assassin so there's like fun like action killing scenes but then there are these weird ass fucking things that feel like they were filmed for an entirely different movie where amber heard plays his like assassin handler his like point person and like no one else in this whole fucking movie, there are these like inserts of basically atomic blonde where Kevin Costner goes to meet her in like these club settings. She is wearing tight fucking leather, plunging v-necks and a red lip. And there is not a single other thing like that in this entire movie. And I watched it because I wanted to watch every Haley Steinfeld movie and was like, what is this career? I love it. What is it? And I I was watching this, like, this feels like the perfect summary of Amber Heard's, like, experience in this industry, except for, like, a few key roles where she's been, like, allowed to be an actress or just, like, have a good time. And where it's just like, yeah, hey, guys, we we got Amber Heard for this movie, so let's um, make her a vixen and completely stylistically detach her scenes from everything else in the entire movie because if we have Amber Heard, everybody's got to want to fuck her, right? Like, we're going to do the bombshell thing with Amber, even though it makes no sense in this movie, but we got Amber, right? So we better use her. Like, it just felt so much like this is how 
everyone cast you <laughs> in like almost everything you've ever done. It's like they wrote around what the movie was going to be otherwise to be like, okay, so here's fuckable Amber Heard. And it's so, so like, I feel like when you go into this movie, your hackles should be up. When you go into Mandy Lane, because you're like, what are these dudes going to parade Amber Heard through the screen doing? And it's actually incredibly subtle. And she is, like, demonstrably keeping her clothes on the entire time. And there is a sense of danger around Mandy constantly. Like, I, by the time she's, like, getting in the lake because she's gone for her run, somehow Mandy Lane, the track star, didn't bring a fucking sports bra. Okay. She's like taking off her tank top and her running shorts and her shoes. And she's in a matching white bra and underwear. Very tasteful cotton. And like, there's nothing like overly sexy. While she's just standing on the bank, taking off her clothes, because everybody else is in the water in their skivvies. Everyone is silently watching her. It's not like they're having conversations while they're like trying to steal glances at Mandy taking off her clothes. Everyone is silently treading water and just the audience to Mandy not sexily taking off her clothes and it was like this is the level of how uncomfortable the entire presence around Mandy is in this movie and I thought that was a very astute sort of slightly hyperbolic but also very very on the nose demonstration of like yes this is what that constant surveillance of like yes Pretty privilege, but also the hotness tax, where, like, you are the hot girl paying the tax of your high visibility. And so it's just, like, things that other people can just do, take off their tea, jump in the water, have a good time. You have to stand there and be suddenly aware that you're putting on a fucking performance for everybody because they can't just be cool. They have to silently watch you in awe while you just get as naked as they are, like, just down your underwear. And I thought that scene really well conveyed to me the... um, the omnipresent, like, threat that feels like it is around Mandy at all times in this movie that really, that totally disarms you in approaching the twist. And I thought that was really smartly played. And I was like, holy shit, I didn't think I could trust these people with Amber Heard, because like, you can barely trust anybody, in, particularly in this era. And yet, here you are. You've done it. I can see why she, like there was a quote from someone, she was like, yeah, I got this script and it just felt different than other stuff that I get. And I was like, I can see mm. that. Having seen the work product of other things that have come your way and this, I can see where you were like, finally, this feels a little different than like the like Amber Heard fuckability parade. Your point about the Amber Heard fuckability parade and her how her career has panned out with the benefit of hindsight pretty much perfectly summarizes how hot mean girls have been treated. Yes. Because of their hot meanness. Mm -hmm. But before we wrap up on Mandy Lane, I did want to talk about how the twist is played. Mm, okay. Because I absolutely fucking love the way that the twist is played. I do. It is just a beautifully economical scene where she gets the, the first aid kit. She gets the big knife. And we see her just place the first aid kit on the floor. Because come on, that was just for show. Yeah. <laughs> and she's just, she's just playing with the knife. Yeah, she keeps her handling side. it. She keeps like yeah. she keeps playing with it and moving it around. And it's it's such a good visual, like she's getting ready, but she's not getting ready to like protect her friend who is running towards her yeah. in in her lingerie in her being chased. 90 being chased by Emmett, her insult bestie, mm -hmm. and it's still with the blood of the boy who just kissed her on her mouth. Yeah, yeah. Literally running to her, being like, please fucking help me. Yeah. Thinking she's going to get help. The way she gets stabbed, literally and metaphorically by Mandy, <laughs> is just 
just such a such a beautiful way it's of giving so us the good. twist on a platter it's and there is no villain monologue there is no villain monologue it's no. just like now i get to have fucking fun now i get to get to the stabbing myself i've been like having to deal with these boring hot people for a fucking <laughs> weekend <laughs> and you you can i like in that moment that for whatever her reasons are I like in that moment that she's not, because she's immediately kind of giddy with Emmett, but she's not giddy to the girl she has just killed. She just holds her until she dies. And she's just like holding her, like kind of stroking her hair a little bit and like brings her to the ground and that's it. There's not like a fuck you bitch. There's not like a, again, for whatever her motivations are in this moment, it feels to my eyes like being like, I didn't like you, but like, you know, hey, hey, sister, <laughs> like, sorry it had to go this way, but it did. Like, I, I, I'm I, going to kill you. I, I am a sociopath. But like, at the same time, like, this isn't where I'm taking my joy today. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're dead, but like, I'm not going to like spit on you. I'm not going to call you a whore. Like, I'm not going to do something very 2000s where I like slut shame you or like spit like kick dirt on you or something i like that it's just no. very and the camera's just like swirling around them because that's some emmett shit emmett played with his food like emmett mm-hmm. emmett taunted his victims and mandy mandy's not a jackass like him because emmett is emotional yeah. Emmett hates them emmett hates these people yes. mandy doesn't give a shit mandy yeah. like i mentioned before mandy just enjoys the chaos she enjoys the play like playing into their expectations but knowing that they don't actually know anything Mm-mm. nobody Mm-mm. knows mandy lane nobody loves mandy lane no. mandy lane is probably not even her fucking name <laughs> and you know what fine because even we the audience do not get to know mandy lane i i think the the fi- that final shot of this movie i think is actually quite wonderful where it kind of cuts back in time to them all like mixing it up and they're like they're out by like a set of train tracks and they're walking around they're kind of horsing around a little bit and just they're all just being youths they're all just being teens being friends and it's it's you get that great shot of amber heard walking behind somebody else and then like you get her perfect hair and just that moment of 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 mandy looking up to the screen and then it pauses and washes Mm -hmm. over totally red and i was like that's exactly what to go out on. That's exactly the look to go out on. Like her, her with the knowledge in her eyes of what was exactly what was about to happen, with nobody else around her being any the wiser. That was. I love how that closes. Good for her. Good for her. Had you seen this one before? Good for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I saw okay. it actually. I actually saw it at the time. Okay. When it was sort of in the, I think I was in, maybe university. And I think I just saw it on my laptop and I had no idea what to expect. It was just like another dirty, grimy, like 2000s horror movie. (laughs) But I always remembered it because I was, I was, I I wasn't, you know, shocked, but I was surprised. I Uh was surprised uh by the twist and I was surprised by the fact that there was no, you know, even instinctively you get used to the idea of, oh, a a character who kills, a woman who kills in a, in a horror movie, she's killing for revenge. Yeah. I'm like, oh, there's no reason. No. There's the reason. It's just I, for lols. I just want to finish you know, I'd rather finish high school first, leaving him in a pit yeah. and rotting cow bodies. And I, I think I, I think the thing that uh continues to really continues to really impress me about this movie, uh the the biggest thing that continues to impress me about this movie now is like watching it last night in twenty twenty two and being like, 
yeah, this has this has aged well in how it handles Mandy. Like, it's not even like, oh, this did an interesting thing for the 2000s. I think the hmm. the class with which it approaches um, exploitation cinema, like this is sort of in the tradition of like, like you said, mm-hmm. Grindhouse was having a moment. I was I was very pleased with how it still feels like a respectable night at the movies while you still get, you know, your pieces of red meat thrown at you. I actually think that this is one of the, uh, I think weirdly people choose to remake the wrong things and That's for the wrong reasons. Very good assessment, yes. But this, I would love to see a remake of this. I totally would. I absolutely would. Like, give because- me this remake with Hunter Schaefer. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, that's, oh. That is such perfect dream casting. I love this for Hunter. Yeah, like that. I like talk about like, you know, weaponizing everyone's assumptions about you and like being able to play that vulnerability. Like, yeah, give me give me the Jules version of all the boys love Mandy Lane. But also like I think with a with perhaps like another early, early career director, more budget and kind of the slickness of the 2020s now. And with everything that horror has become and how horror and women in horror are being talked about and Mm -hmm. who's talking about them now. I'm like, this, this could be a great addition. Like, reimagine it. Don't remake it, but reimagine it. It's such a great concept, such a great fucking title. And so simple. such a great title. And that matters. That shit matters. Yeah. And I... I, I don't really need a, a, a spit on your grave cinematic universe. We don't need to franchise that. Yeah. But we can We can franchise Mandy Lane. That is, I, that is screaming franchise to me. In, a, in, in, the, in the universe where I have fuck you money, which, you know, I'm working on it, I am absolutely going to get a private commission poster of All the Boys Love Mandy Lane. I want, like, a perfectly <laughs> captured All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, like, grindhouse one sheet. With just like Amber, whole whole run, whole thirty six inches tall of the paper, mm-hmm. and like everyone else just in the background behind her because no one else fucking matters. Yes. This is Mandy's movie. Yes. <laughs> yes. And on that note, let's move on from one fucked up teen girl to another fucked up teen girl. Wow. Wow. Yeah. The loved ones. Only what three a, years later. Great title. Another great title. Truly. And the Australians, they don't fuck around, do they? They do not. They wow. Have. So before before we go into this one, um, can you can you briefly summarize what the loved ones is? Twist yes. included. Yeah, the loved ones is uh, a feature film by the director, sh- written and directed by Sean Byrne, who also did the excellent The Devil's Candy. Um, it is about, we open on uh, a boy. What's his name? Xavier. Oh, the character? Xavier Samuel plays? Uh, Brent. Brent, that's it. Yeah, I was, because I could hear Xavier Samuels in my head, but like, okay, yeah. Mm. Uh, Brent is just out for a nice drive with his dad. And then, uh, driving around, uh, they're having a good old time. And suddenly, Brent sees something terrifying in the middle of the road. He sees what looks to us very quickly, like, a man standing in the middle of the street whose body has been carved up and is bleeding. The sight so distracts Brad that he drives off road, crashes into a tree, and then we cut to later. His dad died in the crash. Uh, Brent's family, his him and his mom, they've been ruined in the aftermath of it. And 
as Brent is dealing with his depression, we are on the eve of the school dance. We meet his best friend, the uh, charming little chubby stoner boy. We meet his pretty girlfriend who looks 30. And Holly, beautiful girl, very 30. Adrian is very Adrian Palicki in Friday Night Lights. And he, you know, he gets approached by a girl in the hallway, Lola Stone, who seemingly doesn't know him at all, but is very taken by him and asks him if he will go to the dance with her. And he, as politely as he can, says, I'm going with Holly and his girlfriend. So we see a moment of him and his girlfriend together. They're having sex in the car. They're going to meet at the dance. Great. Cool. Well, we see a sad moment between Brent and his mom where it's basically implied that even if she doesn't mean to, she definitely blames him for the death of his father. So it's a real broken home emotionally situation. And in a rage, he goes out just like hate walking. He goes to this big rock face. He climbs the top. You can tell he does this a lot to just like blow off steam. And he does some self-harming with a razor blade he carries around his neck. But guess what happens when he's sitting up atop that rock structure? He gets black bagged and drugged and pulled to somewhere we don't know until... We see him suited up in a tuxedo in the kitchen of Lola Stone at the house she lives at with uh, her lobotomized, DIY lobotomized mom and Mm -hmm. doting obsessed father, who we will learn throughout the course of the movie, have a long habit of snatching up the boys that Lola, princess, has crushes on. And either dispatching with them or turning them into cannibalistic prisoners they keep in a cell below their floor. And we follow Brent as he desperately tries to escape and as Lola careens further and further into murderous madness. How's that? That's excellent. And only slightly hints at the madness and the torture (laughs) and the incest vibes. I had forgotten... Because the performance is just so intense. Xavier Mm. Samuels does not speak the entire time he is held captive because what the fuck did they inject in his neck? Bleach. I was going to say, was it bleach? So So, is he ever going to be okay again? Like, or is his voice Brent? Oh, Brent, no. Brent, Brent, uh, well, I mean, I don't know, but I would assume that is some uh, very, very long-term damage if someone injects bleach like basically undiluted bleach into any part of your body, but specifically something like your vocal cords, uh-huh, uh-huh. like your voice box, or it's like someone, if someone pours bleach in your eyeball, you're not really going to see right ever again. Yeah. We need to talk about Kevin. Well, quite. <laughs> and it, it leaves Xavier Samuels um, only able to produce this like wraith like scream yeah. that is so upsetting. And it, and the the minute, and as as Anna said, incest vibes. The minute we have meet Lola in her bedroom, she's listening to seemingly the same song she listens to all the time about like, mm-hmm. a, you know, I'm not pretty enough. You don't love me. And she is her dad brings brings in um a, a gift the the dress shoes he got her to wear with her pink dance dress, and from go we understand that dad is probably spends every waking minute around his daughter fighting the urge to fuck her and Lola is clearly very aware of this and very much enjoys it and Mm -hmm. is absolutely playing into the pedophilic gaze of her nervous and dear daddy 
whose whole job it, he seems to he seems to be a home repairman. Uh, but he's the he's the he's the human wrangler, and they also um, we mentioned the lobotomy mom who mm-hmm. dad seems to call bright eyes who i wasn't sure she was the mom for a very long time watching this movie because i was like why the fuck do they both keep calling her bright eyes like is she because mom? there's no there's no life behind her right she's, she's like, alive who is this woman and we see a scar in the middle of her forehead and she has that scar friends because what they do is they bore a hole just above the eyebrows in through the skull just far enough to get through the bone, but not to t- not to pierce the brain, because then they forcibly pour boiling water into the bored hole entry mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. cook the brain. <laughs> of well, the it's person. like bur- it's it's like brewing brain tea. It is a potent brew, and <laughs> like, do you think that would would that hurt or would that immediately kill any sense of anything you had like i i imagine it's excruciating but i was like or does this kill your pain receptors can you feel anything if someone cooks your brain like uh okay so on the one hand i'm not curious enough to find out (laughs) yeah but uh on the other hand uh i think that this is a homemade lobotomy yeah and even even the concept of a lobotomy, which is a procedure with a history that is fascinating because for a very brief, not so brief period of time, people, doctors, medical professionals thought that this was a legitimate cure for a lot of shit that they did not know how to cure. Yeah, and it really seemed like a blanket treatment for how to do anything about women. <laughs> Oh, yes. It specifically affected uh, women's issues and it yeah. specifically affected mental health issues. So basically, yeah. anybody who was not quote-unquote normal and quote-unquote functioning, yeah. in order to just quiet them down, they would be lobotomized. Yeah, just and take at the out worst, And at the, worst, uh, at the worst extreme of it, what it meant is that essentially, and you know, it's debatable, we can we could have a whole other conversation about whether the soul exists or whatever, but what Bright Eyes represents is that thing of you are alive, but everything that made you a person has disappeared. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's just, it's just vacant. This is a, res- this is a, 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 a meat suit yes. with no occupier. Yes, this is a sleeve and... This movie, it's really, like, props to, props to Xavier Samuels for giving an incredible performance in this movie, but it really underscores Robin McLeavy's performance as Lola that you don't talk first about what Xavier Samuels did here because she is so legendarily fucked up and there's two, there's two things that I want to talk about. Before we get into their, uh, well, before we get into the kind of the relentless, explicit torture of this movie, like people talk a lot of shit about Saw. Don't talk a lot about shit about Saw. Saw is not a torture porn movie. Not the first one. The not subsequent the first one. ones are. The first one is a highly, like, very well, tightly written, like, self contained little thriller. Yeah. And it works really well. It's not torture porn. People think about that, say that because of the sequels. This film, this is torture. Like this, is, this film is up here with martyrs in terms of like the extremity and the close up of the torture and the graphicness. Like and the you, like, they're not gonna do that. Oh my god, they did that. 
And the thing that makes it more arduous, in my opinion, is the fact that, like, we see the consequences of it. We oh, see we Xavier have to pull out the knives from his feet oh, to God. run away. We see him limping because he's had, like, his feet pierced with two knives. Uh-huh. He's been nailed to the ground with knives through his feet. That his dad, that Lola's dad hammered in while Lola was sitting on his lap. <laughs> Grinding on him. Grinding yeah. on him. Dry humping him. The I, a fun detail, uh, Robin McLeavy, I was like, God, where the fuck did she go? This was incredible. Found mm. Robin McLeavy on Instagram. She's a proud anti-vaxxer. Who supports? Oh. Who uh, who uh, uh, thought the Australian government should have absolutely let Novak Djokovic in to play tennis at the Australian Open despite not being vaccinated? She is also her her I believe profession is listed as soul guidance and human design for awakening, six slash two mental projector, hermit actress and active witch. You can book spiritual healing appointments. With Robin McLeavy. You know what? I'm good. That's good what she's up to. <laughs> but the thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Yes. And I think this goes back to a lot of our conversations about promising a woman. That I had forgotten is just how hyper girly. Whoa. Yeah. The aesthetic of this film is. Yeah. So what do you make? And this is what brings us to the millennial of it all as well. What do you think of the hyper-feminine horror of it all? How the pink dress, the pink, Lola's room, the, the, the glitter of everything. The pink blush, the like ham-fistedly applied pink blush and over and like too thickly applied eyeshadow. And it's eyeshadow applied with your finger. We've yeah. all done that. Oh, yeah. Like, like, like little girls doing their makeup at home. And dad's in, like, a pink tie in his little suit to match Lola's pink dress. And she has scary dolls all around her room. And yeah. she she's in, like, this state of, like, suspended, like, early childhood, it feels like. Mm-hmm. And it – the thing that was really impressing me when I watched this – and I speaking of Saw, I think it's a very proper invocation here. Because it's important to remember, this is an Australian movie. And – Saw is what imported the extreme violence that was already happening overseas in horror into the United States and created the Hollywood industry of torture tourism cinema that made it big business. But, like, Asia extreme cinema had been happening. The New French Extremity had New been French Extremity, happening. yeah. Australian filmmakers had been fucking you up for decades. And Lee Whannell and James Wan are Australian. Yes. This is the filmmaking tradition that they hail from, that they then came to the United States and they made Saw here. But, like, this Saw sprung from the minds of Australians. And I think that is very valuable context here because now we're going back to the source. We're going to Australia with Sean Byrne's loved ones. And, but to your question, a thing that I was thinking about a lot while I was watching this is how immediately, not a progression, immediately once we are at the table with Lola and she's in her dance, her, 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 her dance uh, attire, it, she's grotesque. Like they're mm. eating and they have food on their faces and they're 
oily and they're greasy and it's gross and it feels unclean and the house isn't necessarily it's not like a pigsty it's not necessarily tidy and like her makeup is messy and she like we see her like they're eating the most like tactile food she's like eating chicken wings and like they're just not wiping their mouths for extended stretches and like her hair it's like like the imitation of a teenage girl and, it, and, it, and the hair is just like kind of, it's not smoothed and pretty necessarily. She's beautiful. And it, what, what you see a lot in 2000s horror in the States is this like fat phobic otherizing, like look at how grotesque these non-normative bodies are and doesn't that make you feel scared? Doesn't that make you feel sick inside? Like look at these obese people look at these emaciated people you look at the texas chainsaw reboots and it's like this is a this is this is just a a a tour of the of the grotesque and what i thought was so interesting watching this movie is that it takes the objectively beautiful robin mclevy and and lola like you see her in school when she goes to ask xavier to the dance and she's got her little t-shirt on and her little jeans rolled up just below her knees like she's fucking adorable and she's got like a little low slung ponytail And then when you see her all done up, it takes somebody beautiful and makes them something immediately, like, hideous and disturbing in this really, like, tactile, gross way. And so I really, and I really appreciated that as a difference from taking things that are obviously outside the scope of normative beauty and making them things we should be afraid of and instead taking something pretty and immediately tipping us off that this is something broken this is something unhinged and I like that to me that was much more gutturally affecting than looking at like like casting call we need like a woman who's five foot four and 450 pounds to come play this character that should make you feel sad inside in a really like degrading way and instead it was like no she's not something to this this trap this honeypot is actually like the most terrifying thing in this situation and just because she's beautiful doesn't mean she has manners it doesn't mean she has cultural cachet it doesn't mean that she can skate by on these looks the interiority of her is something rotten and we see it manifest out as soon as she's in the context of like her evil fucking torture chamber there's something there that I, I find just as you were as you were speaking, I was like, <gasps> I know what you mean. And I think the reason you mentioned that she's like tacky and very pretty, but tacky and sort of unmannered. Yeah. Kind of, you know, kind of rude, kind of like she's, you know, she's Petulant. like, she's like Vincent D'Onofrio in Men in Black when he puts on the, the man suit. It's yeah. still an alien. He doesn't really know how to move in that body. The thing that I've always been fascinated by the, by the like the, hyper feminine thing and yeah. kind of how that's both rejected and sold to us yeah as yeah. the norm but too much of it is weird and tacky <laughs> yeah so too it's, much it's of this, it is weird too much femininity too much hyper feminine stuff you know too much pink is gonna be too it's 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 like it's weird it becomes weird so there yeah and there's this invisible line of like oh cute to like oh that's creepy it's like the uncanny valley of cute there's the other thing about her which i think very few um very few women on cinema have been allowed to 
have, including horror cinema. Horror probably is where it's like thrived the most, but it's always kind of sidelined. But there is, uh, I'll bring you back, but there's this, this article recently that got talked about a lot about kind of a, a, an excess of gross women in literature, of there mm. being a few novels written by women, written by quite young authors who that have been sort of indulging in the grossness of like mm. women being gross, not tacky, but kind of not hiding the things that we're socialized to hide. Yeah. The gross bits of a human body. The like gross that, bits that of someone who does not care for themselves. That came out a couple years ago that stars, it's a German movie. Wetlands. Uh, wetlands. Wetlands. Yeah, that was just yeah. like, fucking gross. Yeah, and grossness is a very specific thing. Yeah, and grossness is very specific. And Lola is that. Like, she's yeah, got she's all the ingredients. She, she's a... She's a Mandy Lane, right? She's pretty by all conventional standards. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with her. She's trying to fit into the feminine aesthetic that she's that you know that she's been told this is the so way hard. a girl should be. Yes. But she is gross and her grossness makes her grotesque and her grotesquerie makes her threatening. Yeah. Because also it's kind of uncanny because the feminine grotesque that we've been sold through horror cinema and the mm-hmm. history of it has usually been older women. You know, older it's exploitation. It's the grand dam guignol. Yeah. And here is a woman who fits in the pretty box, Mm -hmm. but she's fucking gross and she's menacing. And the things that make her gross, the things that you were talking about, is not even the way that she fits or doesn't quite fit in her body and the way that she dresses. It's how she also doesn't have that stop sign in her brain she pushes the finger the her finger in xavier's mouth Ugh. she makes him slick and her you finger. feel like it's a you feel like it's a dirty finger you feel like yeah. it, it like has bits on it and tastes weird she like dry humps him and you can hear the rustling of her dress on his on his trousers mm-hmm. and you her face there's something like on the one hand, it's like, why is this so fucking terrifying? It's because it's an unsocialized woman. <laughs> but it doesn't... But in a way and that's we like, see it's, her it's so, scary! Our first meeting with her is so innocuous. And then yeah. we see her and it's like, wow, you going to school every day is you in normie drag. You yes. in your element... You in your element are, are a fucking house on fire (laughs) like oh my god it's because like no like there is no it's like the texas chainsaw massacre family yes but if they understood how to like you say put on the normie drag yeah but when she's alone she doesn't see this as wrong she doesn't see it as like oh it's not okay for you to try to masturbate on top of a man that you've just like tortured uh-huh it's not okay for you to try to like force feed him fried chicken is it finger licking good i was like this oh. is suddenly the worst collection of words i have ever heard <laughs> oh and it's god the, the beauty of this movie the fucked upness of it is is the fact for me at least is that like the torture porn i can deal with because you know it's gr- it's gross it's not mm-hmm. gross it's grotesque it's violent all that jazz but but it's lola toying with xavier toying with brent mm-hmm. in a way where it's like you're doing all the things that are unseemly 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 and it the like 
this movie is this movie to me is like it's like it's in its way it's like the kind of like the case for gore like it you you don't see the drill bit go into his skull but you see everything around it and the performance of the pain is so visceral you're you I feel like if you recalled this movie to someone you'd be like Oh, wait, but you don't actually see the drill go in because you would kind of think you did. You would kind of think that was a full close up on that thing burning through his skin and bone. But you don't. You (laughs) you see the knives in the feet. You see the hammer coming down on top of the knife. But we don't hold a fixed camera on the knives going deeper and deeper and deeper into the feet. And it, it gives it is so graphic in what it does present. And it is so graphic in how depraved. Lola is that it creates like it the pockets fill in in your mind with what and it's not like the thing's best left off screen it's not even like no it's all on screen it just knows that to keep you with it to keep you with it depending on your level of buy-in to this kind of like heinous sickness it knows that it's gotta it's gotta measure out its its hits of terror because it's keeping you in for a long time because we capture Brent very quickly in this movie and as soon as he's oh, yeah. captured bleach in the neck like as soon as he's captured we have him being like I have to pee through his wraith whisper and we get one of the I had forgotten how fucked up it was this scene oh god when. Like, you think, okay, dad's going to... You're obviously in your head. You're like, oh, now dad's going to carry him to the bathroom. He's going to try and escape, and it's going to be that whole thing. Lola downs a glass of milk, which at somehow is the grossest looking thing anyone's ever done. Listen, she- it's always gross when people choose to drink milk over any other, <laughs> like, soft drink. It's why the McPoyle brothers on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia are such fucking great <laughs> gross villains. The, the the Like, they're the popes of grossness. Yeah, yeah. The on popes. screen. <laughs> yeah it is she 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 chugs a glass of milk gets down on her knees and like we don't see his dick because we don't need to and she just but she unzips his pants and just you know puts his penis in a glass and is like go and then obviously he's getting a little bit of stage fright because he's being sexually assaulted and this is this is after she makes him like like mouth fuck her finger because after she like tries to penetrate him with fried chicken and then so she's like you better you know you better go like have you been telling porky pies like have you did you lie do you not have to go to the bathroom so dad gets up and just goes and gets a fucking hammer and sets it down on the table just like there are gonna be hammer consequences if you don't pee in that glass right now and then it as lola tells him like if you don't go in 10 seconds daddy's gonna nail it to the chair and she is and the way i this is so fucking effective the way he directs that scene where like over xavier samuel's shoulder in this posture of like traditionally posed vulnerability where we have lola looking up at him from below giving like the classic blowjob face like that like porn shot of girl looking up from dick in her mouth to make eye contact with man and she's giving him that face with her his penis in her possession telling him to piss in a cup and he is like 
crying desperate, trying to get his bladder to express anything. Otherwise, dad, who has a nail over his shoulder in one hand and a hammer in the other, is going to nail his penis to this chair and you know he's going to do it. Because, and by the time, you didn't think so then, by the time you get to the end of the movie, you're like, he would have definitely done that. Like, they don't, they're here for, they're here for a good time, not a long time. They didn't need him to keep that intact. And Lo doesn't want to fuck anybody but her dad anyway. So, like, the, the inversion of that power position where you have the guy in the chair with his penis exposed and the woman on her knees looking up at him and she is sexually assaulting him humiliating him making him urinate into a glass while a man threatens to nail his genitals to a chair is in in a fucking in inexplicable shocking sequence to experience i was like Wow, it has been a long time since I watched this movie. This hits just as hard as it ever did. Holy shit. Like, this girl is, this character is like Hall of Fame fucking sociopath. Oh, yeah. (gasps) And that look on dad's face the entire movie, that just like pleading for approval look that he gives his daughter the entire movie is the most like, that's it. Take my skin off and set it on fire. I don't need it anymore. <laughs> All it's causing me is pain. Get it out of here. Get my body out of here. And as much and as much as Lola is a Hall of Fame movie villain, slasher villain, that we should definitely talk more about. What about Brent? How does Brent wow. fit into every single, every single tick box of a slasher final girl? Wow. I mean Wow. Jesus. He really is, he's giving an all-time performance. Because again, he's not speaking. Like, and Lola doesn't talk much either. She's not villain monologuing. Like, she doesn't, she at one point is sitting on his lap with dad next to them, going through the scrapbook of all the boys that, that they've killed together. But there's no, like, daddy does this for me because I want this. It is all... Sorry, can I just can I just make a quick observation before it leaves my brain? Yes. You know what the difference is between a female serial killer and a male one in these horror movies? Is the fact that the scrapbooking comes after the deed is done. <laughs> there is no scrapbooking aspirations of murder. Yeah. Lola scrapbooks after that shit is already done. She does. She does. And it's it looks oh, like God. it looks like uh it looks like uh the burn book from Mean Girls. Like, it is <laughs> You know, it's hearts. It's yeah, it's girly. It's millennial pink, and just there's something specific about the effect of the Australian accent and Robin McLeavy's tone of voice that makes it all so much more horrifying. There's just a particular pitch of her tone of voice that is shockingly uncomfortable in this context, mm-hmm. and she's just also kind of sweating the whole time. gross it's the grossness gross she like you feel like she would have a smell about her (gasps) oh my god i was just thinking this that the biggest when i was watching this movie last night i was like uh i was like i kept covering myself up and also this this feeling as well of and very few movies achieve this and this can go like both in good ways and bad ways but this movie makes you feel like you can smell it yeah. This movie it, smells rank. It's like when you watch like a, a, a movie set in like 
pre-industrialized London and it's just like oh my god I can smell the streets of Shakespearean England like there's there's feces everywhere here like this is a (laughs) fucking nightmare I am so glad I wasn't alive then this is terrifying where is sanitation and but like in in Brent like we have this this vulnerable wounded like outsider we have like regulation hottie regulation hottie in Xavier Samuels who like clearly has who's not alienated because he's you know because natural selection has weeded him out he's alienated himself from the sort of social fabric he's depressed he's he's fucking shattered and oh my god that adorable card that he writes his girlfriend because she says I love you and he can't say it but then she finds a card that he left for her and it says um, thank you for doing what all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do. And he says, I love you. I was like, oh, that's really cute, Brad. Um, but he's like the vulnerable outsider who therefore like has a better sense of like the the broad scope of things than who kind of always has a little bit more information than everybody else. Like he gets wise pretty quickly to when he realizes what's happening to him, like that he's a part of something that's been going on. And then when he sees that one of Lola's previous victims was the boy standing in the road that he swerved out of the way of crashed the car and killed his dad, he suddenly becomes a larger part of a grand design, which like final girls, I feel like so often become like a larger part of a grand design. They're somebody's fucking daughter. They're somebody's niece. They were somebody's love interest They're They have some sort of historical connection to the person doing the killing. And we see this like progression from, vulnerable soft to like steeled in the fires of trauma and hardship and arising in the face of inexplicable circumstances being physically humiliated being physically humiliated dominated over by a psychopathic by a malevolence and then rising up to vanquish people who have and even even like in the very female typical role that Lola puts him in by sexually humiliating him by by making by imposing her will on this character in such explicit and salacious ways it it so clearly and like uncomfortably but like in satisfyingly mirrors the way that we see men make women into fuck toys and like objects of exploitation for like the purposes of like them getting off on not just like the sexual gratification but like the power imbalance between them so by the time he finally like rises up he too has had to like sort of become the killer to be the survivor in the way that the final girl either she runs out like Sally Hardesty or she has to like match the metal of the killer and it's become it's become it's it's yin and yang become its mirror in order to topple it which is what Brent bloodied and beat up with a I don't know his brain has been exposed to oxygen at this point seemingly <laughs> somehow he's still moving and walking but like man I don't few few survivor survivor girls let alone no no survivor boys since we don't have those um have ever I think gone through as much as Brent does in this movie he takes an all-time fucking ass kicking mm-hmm. he even falls out of a goddamn tree he falls out of a tree there's a whole part of this movie where he runs up a tree 
And to get him out, it's actually so weird that this was like what Sean, like it was like they needed something else to do. And Sean Burr was like, I don't know. Like we'll throw rocks at him till he falls out of a tree, which is exactly what fucking happens. And Lola hits him with the rock. He falls out of a tree, seemingly goes headfirst into the hood of a car and his body just crumples to the ground. I was like, was that a stunt person? And are they dead? Like that looked fucking horrendous. Jesus. And he, this movie is an all time fuck with you in terms of like, he's going to get out. He's going to get out. He didn't, he didn't get out. He didn't get out. He's going to fight back. He's going to get out. Nope. Nope. They got him again. They got him again. Like you really, you really hit hopelessness. If he had just died in that fucking cell in that basement, I would have been like, yeah, what else could have happened? Like that, there was no other way this movie could have ended. Like we said at the beginning, the Australians don't fuck around. No. This takes the idea and the visuals of torture porn, of gore, and of every single granddaddy of slasher films. Yeah. And puts it through a fucking meat grinder. But I think there's it's the the falling out of the tree is the added humiliation. It's the humiliation element, I think, that makes yeah. it so much. There is so more, much humiliation. So much more visceral. Because it's it's the it's the playing around with the food, yeah, and it's the fact that we 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 don't have time or anything to like talk about everything that's going on around Brent that's mm-hmm. not happening between him and Lola and her father, mm-hmm. but everything the thing that also kind of makes it so desperate and so hopeless is that everyone is doing everything right. You don't really get they really are. You don't really get this vibe of like, oh, you stupid, you stupid movie teenagers. No. What the fuck are you doing? You're making the wrong decision. Y'all are going to get killed. It's like, no, no, no. Everyone's doing everything pretty much as you would in real life. Everything's he's, making correct life choices. But God, Brent is trying, getting you guys. tortured to shit. He's really fucking trying, you guys. And I, 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 we, I, I do have to shout out. The uh, the Australian tradition of genre cinema is perhaps my like favorite international segment of genre, mm-hmm. and a, a big part of of one of the things I love so much in like the the DNA of of Australian horror and genre is that character of the madman. I I think they really have the global gold standard for the maniac character. Like you have you have characters like Princess, you have characters like Toe Cutter in Mad Max, and then Immortan Joe in Fury Road, and you know any sort of like wild outback type that you're gonna put in a in a, like a supporting role in like Razorback or obviously in um, Wolf Creek. Um, you have this incredible lineage of. Like, Eli Roth wishes he could write a gleeful psychopath <laughs> like any Australian writer-director can write a psychopath. And I I, I brought this up on, on many occasions, but it was it was one of my f- favorite things I've ever written was there was um, the year um, Hounds of Love and oh Killing Ground and Berlin Syndrome and, like, two other movies came out from, I, I think Devil's Candy even came out that year. Mm-hmm. And I think one other film by an Australian, horror film by an Australian filmmaker came out and I interviewed all the directors of all of them talking about like these sort of common threads throughout decades of Australian genre cinema that really gave their national tradition of it a really distinct identity. And one of the things we talked about was that nation, that, that madman character and uh, oh, the Belco experiment had, had come out, I think that year or the year before. And I talked to Greg McLean about it 
And I asked Greg McLean about that kind of acute sensation of insanity that Australian genre cinema is so good at evoking. Like, look at movies like Wake and Fright. Like, the, no one does, like, a descent into into like the theater of one's own terrifying mind at times like like an Australian movie does and he talked about how he's like you know this is this was you know this was a penal colony he's like there is this very like there's this outlaw tradition of the history of Australia that is at odds with like the civilization that sprung up in the exterior around the exterior of this country with this you know quote unquote like wild untamed interior and the contrast between the like white gentrified rim with like the you know horrible history of like genocide against aboriginal people and trying to sort of tame the outback that has happened and he talked about just sort of like this national tension between civilization and the wild that imbues the entire He's like, you know, that he talked about really imbuing the entire country with and it surfacing in, in in its film this sort of feeling of anxiety and discomfort with the clashing identities that make up Australia. And I thought that was really interesting, this notion of like these sort of outlaw foundation to a place that contributes to a sort of wildness at the core of its sensibilities and a, and a very gallows sense of humor. And that was... That was one of my favorite things I've ever gotten to write about. And watching something like this, I just see that that fascinatingly, like, fun, unhinged, depraved, violent. And also, like, being a country outside the United States, like, people talk about, like, the ugly American and stuff like that. And, like, the American torture cinema. But, like, we are truly huge pussies compared to, like, genre filmmakers of the world. Like, our, our cinema standards and what's allowed in, like, theaters are, it's so much more chaste. Than, than what is made, made you know, if not mainstream, is a part of the broad, you know, sort of cultural filmic conversation in other countries. And so to watch something like this, it's like, I almost have more fun with it knowing that it's an Australian movie. Because I feel like when American filmmakers do it, I'm like, get the fuck out of here, you sicko. Like, get, <laughs> get your house of a thousand corpses out of my face, you maniac. I don't want anything to do with that. But then I watch The Loved Ones and I'm like, no, oh, what a like there's just something about where it just feels it feels like shock value when I see American filmmakers do it and then when I see filmmakers from from countries like particularly like South Korea France um Australia Japan when I see extreme violence coming out of those nations that have a history of really artfully doing it and provocatively doing it in a way that feels in conversation with with sort of the social realities of the place instead of just like Sherry Moon Zombie screaming at somebody while she pisses on them and cuts their throat or something like whatever fresh hell awaits us in that landscape and so I just like I I I love Princess even more seeing her a part of that history that she comes from and knowing that she she is a chick who can hang with every bit of that legacy um and that's that's a tall order, especially for somebody who didn't like doesn't have like an extensive filmography. It, it was like they sort of they came out, they had some other work they did, but they did this thing, and it was like, what fucking gear did you find to do this? Role? <laughs> and then like we didn't see a ton from then after that, and it's like it's just fucking in your soul, man. You just like had to bring out what was in your soul, and then uh, the incest. That's a quick way to make anything more 
more upsetting. That fucking slow dance, Anna. That fucking slow dance with her dad. That slow dance rivals the slow dance in Calvair as one of the scariest slow dances in horror cinema for me. With that huge disco, like, not, like, huge in terms of a club, but, like, huge for a fucking living room disco ball <laughs> spinning behind them. And just, like, when you just see that, like, this is, you know, it's ostensibly this whole ceremony, this whole repeated ritual is about Lola finding her prince, as she says. But, like, really, actually, it's just an erotic bonding exercise between father and daughter. But also, and knowing because she shows us the scrapbook and we then see the mangled remains of the, the boys that they've tor- they've tortured before. And the plot is very simple, but it kind of it's it's cyclical. And, and you know, the, the 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 man that caused the accident that killed Brent's father is yes. one of Lola's previous victims and is also the, the older brother of the girl that his best friend is going to prom and hooking up with mm-hmm. uh who is in her own well, drug-fueled depressive spiral we turn we we realize exactly. and her dad is a cop that horror she's like curled up on the bed just like yeah why, yeah, yeah. It why, all, can't it all, you, why can't you find him like it oh. all makes sense but it's also it's the fact that you know you implicitly know that they've been doing this dance several times oh yeah this is this is foreplay what we're seeing here Ugh. is not vibes, it's foreplay. It's not vibes. And um, we don't we don't need to be told this explicitly. It's very implicit. It's very clear. And that's so fucking gross. One of my favorite moments in the entire movie that just like it keys you into the ride you've just got on, where they're sitting at the table and like Lola's already done like the chicken's gross, she's gross, it's all gross, mom's lobotomized, and Lola. And dad's like, you know, what's the matter, bright eyes? Are you not hungry? It's like, I don't even think she can physically feed herself. Is that, what are you asking her? And you see Lola even, you see dad even engaging with Lola, uh, engaging with mom. And it makes Lola furious. And the way she just like tightens up. And you know that that like, that mom got lobotomized when Lola couldn't contain her competitive jealousy with her mother anymore and was like, daddy, it's me or mom. And so they fucking mm-hmm. lobotomize mom. And then she just like, she gets that like competitive look across her face and she's like, daddy, who's prettier? And it's like, oh no. And he's like afraid to answer. <laughs> well, you're both beautiful. And she's just like, uh, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And he's just like watching this whole shit play out. Like Xavier's watching this whole shit play out at the end of the table. And then they're slow dancing. And she's like, I can't find my prince because it's been you all along, daddy. And the way he... Uh, I can't even handle you saying... I know! I know! And the way he, like, he plays that so... He plays that role so well. Because he is so attracted to his... And he, like, he hates it. And he's trying not to do anything about it. But he ain't trying, he's, Jordan. He's like, but like you can see the like. I'm not saying I'm, there's no sympathy. If there's no, there's no sympathy. You can see this like raging thing happening behind his eye when she like says like it's always been you. The way he like closes his eyes and he's like, I feel like you can hear me like I'm not gonna kiss my daughter. I'm not gonna kiss my daughter. But then you know he's gonna kiss his daughter because of course he fucking is. Do you think they? Do you think? Do you think that's the first time they've had because they do the dance? They de- the father daughter dance happens every time. No, no question about it. Do you think 
that that's the first time she said that? Or do you think that's a little role play they do every time and that they've definitely fucked? I don't want to think about it too much. But <laughs> I definitely, definitely don't want to think about it too much. I I think it's escalating. Because uh, I don't think they have. I don't. I, I don't, don't think they have. I think it's escalating. And I think that because of the moment where he gives her the dress and because of the significance of prom, the significance of that is like the the closing chapter of teenagehood, the closing chapter of high school life. Little and girls also, becoming a woman. Yeah, I was I was gonna say that maybe like in a less gross way, but you know this is a gross fucking movie. Basically, that it's like, it's the oh, uh, this is sticking in my throat even as I'm about to say it. It's the ripening. (laughs) (laughs) There was no other way to say it. There's no other way. It's hideous. true though that like if this night had gone according to plan for them they would have consummated the relationship like they oh would this have, movie's so gross Jordan. He, they would uh. have, he would have finally fucked his daughter she would have finally fucked her dad if this night had i can't believe i own this movie on blu-ray i feel gross <laughs> <laughs> oh god it is just it's sick it's gross this movie is so gross and it looks so good like the color like you said the color scheme, the, the young girl of it, like the bright, like pops of light, like it's a. Dude, it is the same color movie. scheme as Promising Young Woman. It is the same color yeah. scheme. Yeah, it absolutely is. Like ex- excellent execution, Sean Byrne. And you know what? It, it, like the incest was really the cherry on top. That really <laughs> let us know we were unsafe. And yeah, it, it that. It is incredible how much the sexual tension between Lola and her dad conveys when they never have a fully physically, like, objectively reported to Child Protective Services physically intimate moment. Like, they have the dance and everything, and I think father-daughter dances are weird generally. I can't imagine ever slow dancing with my dad and having his hand on my waist. I don't. I don't do that. So like father-daughter dance is anyway weird to me. But I know that like I'm on the far end of that. It's like a traditional wedding thing. People do it. Affection is fine. So even the dance is like, that's that's not improper. But like, if you, like the way this movie made me feel, they might as well have been fucking on the table in front of Brent. That is how this Honestly, movie Honestly, that would have been feel. less gross. That would have been less gross. <laughs> there, There is something about just like, there's something about the specificness and the let's just get to it of it that is less gross than like longing stares and like furtive touches. Yes. Fuck. Fuck yes. this movie. It's so good. <laughs> and I hate it. I might I might give away that Blu-ray. I don't think I can have it in my house. I feel <laughs> icky. I feel icky about it. It Ripen- feels icky. Ripening. Ah, stop it. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> But oh god. Death. To wrap this conversation up, <laughs> the uniting factor of these two movies when I put them all together is not the millennial aspect of it all, although mm. that's one thing. It's also the murderous teenage girls. Yes. So. In such why in the bipolarity of their difference. Truly. So as and and teenage girls are not that often the murderesses no of their own movies so looking at these two as a whole 
and in this time period of horror as well. How do you think they speak to this, to this not as iconic as it should be mm. figure of the teen teen murder girl or the teen serial killer? I think to me what what is fascinating about that is the bad rap that uh like teen hot girls get. Um and, and like even like maybe marginally mean, but not like super mean. Compared to even in our like popular mythology, like we have a lot of mean teen girl movies. We have a lot of like toxic girl friendship movies. But there aren't that many girl killer movies like they are still the exception and yet like the way they exist in the as a villain figure like if they're framed as a villain figure it seems like they almost exist disproportionately in our imagination to how materially they have actually existed as the murderers because it's so easy to hate them it's it have you seen all of yellow jackets it's like Mm -hmm. jackie like everybody on that show really easily can hate Jackie and everybody watching that show can really easily hate Jackie because yeah she's a prissy little bitch since she showed up in the woods she has had zero fucking interest in becoming better at surviving she is happy to have other people do it for her and she clearly is a snotty brat but there are also things that come to pass in the show uh that Jackie is objectively right about and is like hey guys this isn't cool and we shouldn't do this, and I can't believe you're doing this. And yet, because she is the, you know, they're all gorgeous, but because she's, like, the resident hot popular girl, like, that's her social occupation among these high schoolers. And they've all had years to develop feeling a way about Jackie and the social hierarchy. When she confronts the group with the the wrongness of their decisions, even though she couldn't be more right, and the person she's having, like, a disagreement with is is part of team do bad shit because it is she is such an easy figure to unite against. There is a tribal rejection of Jackie that feels not rooted in her position of, like, taking the morally correct path, but because it's like, that fucking Jackie bitch. Like, everybody's been kind of waiting to stick it to Jackie for a long time. And Jackie is a Jennifer Check. Jackie's a Jennifer Check. This hot girl who's, like, kind of a bitch, who people have a whole idea about, but who she she got sacrificed because everybody thought she was a virgin and she wasn't, but because she's a, you know, a blood-sucking, a blood-drinking succubus, and she's going to, like, tear through the town and fuck whoever she wants. She's damned if she does, and she's damned if she doesn't. So, like, there is such a particular kind of villainy that is easy to ascribe to the hot girl that, like, I'm fascinated by it as, like, a social impulse. So when I see, like, hot girl villains in movies, it's very satisfying because it's very fun, and it's also, like, this is, like, validating for so many people to see because they're like, I never trusted that bitch anyway. And it's like, why, though? Like, I get that there are mean, hot, popular girls out there, but in the terms of, like, being murderesses, it's not, like, the bulk of our fucking serial killers. Jason was not a hot teen girl. Leatherface was not a hot teen girl, though he might have wanted to be. Possible. Like, Billy and Stu are not hot teen girls, but I feel like if you 
told people, like, what percentage of movie serial killers do you think are hot teen girls? There could be, like, a reflexive response to people being like, I don't know, 40%? And it'd be like, I don't know, probably 10 Maybe, but because they're so easy to be the villain and they so conveniently fit this thing we want to malign and put ourselves above and push back against, I think it's it's always fascinating to interrogate when we actually get a good teen girl killer. Because it's like, yeah, but you're talking about her like, yeah, well, of course she did this. Like, But she's still the exception. Just because you didn't like the hot popular girl or she didn't like you doesn't mean that, they all, that they're all murdering bitches. But because they're hot and popular, there's the hotness tax. And I'm fascinated by the collision of the pretty privilege and the hotness tax. And I think watching them kill people is a very interesting collision in, in the context of horror movies of that conversation. Jordan, as per usual, we've been recording for almost two hours. <laughs> Last time we had to be very responsible and we were very on time. You were like, I have an hour. We were very on time. Period. Well, this time, well, this time we've gone over. But what a joy it has been. We've gone over. (laughs) But it's been a joy. Thank you so much for having me once again, Anna. You know I'm on standby for you always. Thank you so much for your time, your insight, and as always, your enthusiasm, which I'm now chasing instead of fearing. (laughs) And and uh, and I'm especially grateful, uh, specifically, to be asked to come on and talk about teen girl, uh, teen girl murder movies because it, it, nothing <laughs> could be more satisfying for me to discuss. Exactly. So, Jordan, where can we find more of your work online? What are you up to that you need to pitch? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as always at Jorcru, J O R C R U, where. Uh, I will be talking about my podcasts, including my newish one for the Maximum Fun Network called Feeling Seen. And by the time this comes out, I suspect the episode with Jasmine Savoy Brown of Yellow Jackets and New Scream fame uh, will be available for your listening pleasure. I've been having really great conversations with people. I've, I've really loved it about characters that they felt most identified uh, by on screen and also the limits of identification on screen and, and talking through the the challenge that most people have finding characters that feel familiar to them because it's been such a narrow window of fictional creations that we've actually been permitted to see and consume for ever and so that's been really great and I'm working at the moment I'm very excited on the next uh chapter of the whole movie podcast where I am talking with my friend the screenwriter and um dear academic academically minded brilliant pal of mine margot carlson all about robots on screen robot politics robot sympathy robot subjugation and we've been having a lot of fun discussing some of the most uh, famous robot oriented movies of all time so that'll be coming up and you know you can pay me if you subscribe to my patreon patreon.com slash cruciola so that I'll, i'll leave it at that for now I'm excited for the robot podcast. I've been having a great time. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Anna.